0: Uh, Every year since Southland City Church began, a bunch of us have uh, wanted to give above and beyond the kind of regular giving that we do that pays the regular bills around here. And we use Christmas Offering to live out our calling as a community for our city and the world. And so some of the resources from Christmas Offering go to support things that are happening with South Bend City Church. You'll hear about that on another Sunday. Some of the resources go to support things like out in the world at large. But today we wanted to focus on the way that we want to use Christmas Offering to show up for needs that are right here in the city of South Bend. Uh, You'll see that in the middle of the card there. One of those options includes uh, the South Bend Community Schools uh, Teacher's wish list. So uh, as a church, like we're big believers that education schools are really important for equity and well-being for the kids in our city. Uh, and so we, we want those schools to flourish. And we know that teachers are often the heart and soul of that effort. And that teachers are often spending money out of their own pocketbooks to fill gaps and resources in their classrooms. We would like to help with that. The South Bend Education Foundation, a group that we supported with our uh, Studebaker talks that we hosted a little while ago, uh, they've worked with teachers in South Bend schools to understand their wish lists for things in the classroom. These are like very practical kind of everyday things that they don't have budget for, but we can help out with. They have things on that list like storage bins. They would just like to have some money for storage bins or like bean bags or ball pumps. Uh, And what we've found out is that if we hit our total goal for the Christmas offering of $75,000, we're going to be able to knock out every single thing on that wish list. We think we can actually buy everything that teachers are asking for right now in South Bend schools for their classrooms. So we're really excited about that. Again, if we hit the full goal, we'll get to do all of it. Uh, If we don't hit the full giving goal on the Christmas offering, we're still going to do everything on the list. We'll just kind of proportionately ratchet down the dollars so we still do everything just proportionate to how much money is given Uh, and then the other thing happening under city and we want to focus on this today has to do with refugee resettlement and to tell you more about that i want to welcome a friend of southland city church to the stage she's the executive director of neighbor to neighbor please welcome andrea kramer hey andrea Hi, Jason. Uh, tell us a little bit about Neighbor to Neighbor. What, what's the organization?
1: Yep. So um, I founded Neighbor to Neighbor four years ago, um, and it's really to welcome displaced people, refugees, asylum seekers, and immigrants um, into our community to help them integrate into the fabric of our community. We do that through relationships, advocacy, and education.
0: Yeah. Now, uh, right now, there's a, we're, we're anticipating uh, refugees coming from Afghanistan obviously a lot of us have seen like headlines about what's happening there but can you tell us a little bit more about like how many people were anticipating and maybe a little bit about how neighbor to neighbor and and we can show up for them
1: yeah So we're anticipating about 60 to 75 um, Afghan people coming to our community. And actually, the first arrivals came last week. There's more coming this week. Um, So it's a busy, exciting time. Um, Neighbor to Neighbor is really coming alongside these efforts by um, putting together volunteer teams of about three to five households of people. Those can be single people, married people, families with children, um, just a diversity of folks that can make up a team to walk alongside a new family for the first year. Yeah. Um so the commitment is is not anything to um you know think is small, it's a big yeah. commitment. Yeah. Um but it's also really rewarding and we're excited to um, allow so many in our community to experience the goodness of welcoming newcomers.
0: Yeah, so before we even get to the money stuff, one way that we can show up is to sign up for that. I hear you saying like be aware, it's a real commitment, right? Like mm-hmm. you're joining a team. That's going to wrap around these these families and really walk with them and be in a mutual relationship with them, mm-hmm. right? Um, if people want, are interested in, in, in that effort, if you want to show up in that way, uh, you can always reach out to Neighbor to Neighbor or you can uh, reach out to Ryan Yezel on our staff team. Just email Ryan at com and Ryan is really happy to connect members of SaltPens City Church with Neighbor to Neighbor if you want to show up uh, in a support team role. Mm-hmm. Um, There's also a financial component, a way that we can show up financially for what you guys are doing right now. Can you tell us just a little bit about what that money will do?
1: Yeah. um, First, I want to say thank you so much um, for having us on your radar, for being generous. Um, I can't really tell you how humbling and honoring that is, so thank you. Um, But we are really looking to... you know, serve about twice as many folks as we do currently. Um, over the next couple months, we're going to have, you know, 60 to 70 people coming. Um, so we're really needing to um, expand our capacity, our staffing, um, the things that we provide as far as, um, you know, seasonal clothing, school supplies for kids who are coming. They're getting enrolled in schools right away. Um, supplemental food um, you know, all, all of these kinds of like basic first uh, few months sorts of things. Finances will go towards that. And then also just um, really robust training for our um, volunteers. We don't want to just gather people and kind of like throw you out and say good right. luck, right? Yeah, so yeah. Um, we're going to be doing some training around that and then support along that year that um, folks are volunteering with families.
0: Yeah. Um, whether somebody wants to give or show up in a support role or whether we just want to be a little more educated than we are right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, like what do you wish we would understand about the experience that these people are having um, on their way here and then once they arrive?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so um, two things, I guess. One is that um, people are people, right? And so when we move to a new place, we all can um, sort of... Imagine what that would be like um, if you've moved to a new city or a different part of the country or maybe you've lived in another country before. You know, there's some basic things that you need to know and learn right away. Where do I go get my groceries? Who's my doctor? Where do my kids go to school? Um so some of that, you know, you can empathize with and understand that someone's experience. But on top of that, then, there's also these language barriers and transportation barriers and just new systems. Um, Think about coming from a culture that, you know, operates in cash currency only, and then you're thrown into a whole different system like that. And then going to a huge box store like Meijer is like... I mean, that kind of gives me hives sometimes, you know? (laughs) Right, um, especially
0: this season. Yes, right.
1: So all of these experiences can be really overwhelming, and people tend to... um, become really isolated then. And so that's what we're trying to um, help with, is to give people that social capital, give them a little bit of that support so that they're not alone and they don't have to do all of these new experiences alone.
0: Yeah. Um, I know a few years ago I I went to Lebanon and I was in the Bekaa Valley with refugees from Syria who had left there because of the war that was happening. And uh, if I'm being honest, at first it felt really exotic in a way that I'm actually really not proud of. you know, you're in these tented encampments in the Bekaa Valley, meeting people whose culture is very different from mine and whose language is different. Um, but then I remember being in one of these tents with one of these families and asking the father um, when their family decided to leave Syria, like, how, what was it like to make that decision? And he just spoke so plainly as a parent about the day they realized that they couldn't guarantee the safety of their children in that place. And, like, in that moment, all that cultural distance just collapsed. And I'm not even a parent, but there was just something so human and universal about that feeling. And I thought to myself, like, who among us um, wouldn't do whatever we could do to make our loved ones safe? And I think, um, like you say, like, there's something universal and human about these new neighbors of ours that are showing up here right now. And it sounds like you're really just giving us a way to show up and be human with them and be in relationship with them, right?
1: Yeah, and, and to learn from them too, right? So there's a lot of things that we provide at the beginning. Um, so it feels like the power dynamics are sort of shifted, but the idea is that over time, you know, it moves from welcome to solidarity to mutuality. And we are putting ourselves in the position of learners and students also. There's so much to learn um, culturally and um, faith um, from our new, our new neighbors. And um, I've had that experience time and time again.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, You said thanks to us. Um, I'm sure we really want to say thanks to Andrea uh, for her and the work that she's doing. You're out there leading, and we're really grateful that we get to come alongside it. So uh, we say thanks to Andrea and for the work that she's doing. Thanks so much. Thanks. Amen. So this Advent, we uh, began last week by asking some questions about, like, the nature of hope and whether there are ways of hoping that are really spoken to in, in the Christian story, in the Christmas story, Um, and whether there are ways of hoping that especially can speak to us when things are actually hard. And this week and next week, then, we thought, uh, because we want to be the kind of church that actually talks about things, rather than just, like, pretending that the world out there isn't there, we'd rather talk about the things that we're all thinking about the rest of the week anyway. And so we asked ourselves, are there a couple of, like, prominent areas of, of, like, what's going on in the world right now where hope seems kind of hard to hunt for, or where we feel like we're being confronted with something that's just really challenging? And one of those areas that came to mind for us is actually questions around creation care and climate change. Um, Now, I know that might feel like a strange topic for the middle of Advent. I don't think it is, actually. And we're going to make the case that this is exactly the kind of thing that Advent is meant for us to talk about. But to help me make that case and to explore it further, I wanted to bring up a a bona fide expert in helping us think about these things. Uh, He's a member of the Southland City Church family, and I'm going to let him tell you more about himself. But please welcome Dr. Jim Stump. You can do better than that. There we go. I didn't know that there are some some stump fans here in the house. Uh, some of that's from your, your time teaching in the area here. But Jim, tell us a little bit about like where you've come from and, and who you are and the work that you do.
2: Yeah, I grew up in a uh, solidly Christian, loving family and uh, has informed the way I see the world for sure. And during my high school years, kind of got shuffled into the math and science, and so uh, became attracted to that part of uh, the created order as well. And did a degree in math and science education. After I graduated, my wife and I uh, left and went to Africa. Taught in a mission school there uh, for a year. And in Africa, when the sun goes down and you live way up country where there isn't electricity, there's not a lot to do but to turn your lantern on and read books. And I started really for the first time reading more seriously. And uh, what I did was I started working my way through the 19th century literature shelf that was in the library. Like we all do. Everybody <laughs> does. So Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Herman Melville and. I'm not the first person that this has happened to, but somewhere in the conjunction between the sort of analytical skills from math and science, and then these really big ideas in 19th century literature out popped philosophy, and I came back and said, I want to be a philosopher. So I went to grad school in philosophy and did this thing called philosophy of science, which sounds different than you might think, because it's not like... I actually do any science. I don't put on a white lab coat and sit and experiment. That's what the people in this other room do. I sit in a dark room and think about what they're doing. So that's what philosophy of science is.
0: Yeah. And then where'd that
2: take you? So eventually, so I was teaching philosophy here at Bethel for a number of years and then got involved with this organization called BioLogos, which is a science and faith organization that does its best to say, what has science actually learned about the way the world works? And then what do we believe as Christians about the way the world is? And how can we bring those into more fruitful conversation?
0: Yeah, fruitful conversation is not the way you might always characterize what that space has been, right? Between um, people who are thinking about the science, people who are thinking about faith. I'm curious just... Maybe a show of hands. Uh, anybody in the room who's ever sort of gotten the impression, whether you've thought this or whether you've heard other people tell you this, that there's just a real like, conflict between science and faith, that they're sort of enemies in some form. Have you picked that up? Yeah. So the work that you and BioLogos do is to kind of explore possibilities of some other relationship between these two things. Uh, can we talk a little bit more about how you think about science and, and, and faith and how they relate?
2: Uh, seeing these as enemies or in conflict, first of all, makes you think that they're giving competing answers to the same question. And the first thing I would say about that is the vast majority of the time, they're asking different questions. They're not talking about the same thing. Most scientists sit at their benches in their laboratory investigating and experimenting on some little narrow slice of the natural world trying to figure out how it works, and it just doesn't matter whether they're Christians or not. So that's one of the virtues of science, that it works independent of ideology. So whether I'm a Christian or a Jew or a Hindu or an atheist, I get the same results. By doing these experiments. And so most of the time, it doesn't, the, these two aren't trying to give competing answers to the same questions. Now the difficulty is there's some of the sort of loud and spectacular examples where they do come into contact. So if I'm asking a question like, what does it mean to be a human being? Now there are going to be some relevant Data from the sciences as well as from what I bring to it as a person of faith. I believe that humans are created in the image of God, but that's not a scientific. Claim that's a theological claim, but I need to be in dialogue with people who say human beings are homo sapiens That have evolved over this long stretch of time and have acquired these characteristics that are in relation to these other Species that we, we find out here and this is relevant. So there needs to be a conversation between those two But I would I would suggest that most of the time that we find these in conflict It's because one side or the other is kind of overreaching so if I'm a person of faith and say, I have read my Bible and I have decided that the earth is only 6,000 years old, many of us would think that that's maybe overreaching and not really the sphere of authority that people of faith from reading scripture ought to have. But on the other side too, you'll hear, you can go down to Barnes and Noble or find books from scientists who are selling a lot of books by saying things like, I'm a scientist, so you should believe everything I say, and I'm telling you religion is stupid in There is no God. That's overreaching from that side. That is not a
0: scientific question. The scientific method is not equipped to answer that question. Yeah. So
2: the the kind of moral of this story is understand the limits of these areas of investigation, and then you can bring them into fruitful conversation rather than antagonism.
0: Yeah, that's so helpful. Uh, Now, one of the areas where I think there's been perceived, at least, to be a lot of conflict, at least culturally, is for the last few decades in the conversation around climate, climate change, uh, so let 's go there a little bit and let 's talk a little bit about um, some of that perceived conflict before we actually go into the issue though. Uh, I want to ask you to make the case for why on earth a church would be talking about climate change. Are you just a democrat that 's here to get us all to become like political progressives <laughs> so it 's unfortunate
2: that the way the climate or the way the the culture wars have been divided up in our in our culture that too often climate change and taking responsibility for the way things are going in our environment has been bundled together on one side of the culture wars, and Christianity has too often been bundled together with a bunch of issues on the other side. And so we have this kind of gut feeling that we've absorbed from our culture that we're not supposed to be for that. Isn't that what all those bad liberal left-leaning people are? Um, but let me make a little case for this. I, I think it's interesting that both the scientific view of climate change as well as this theological view have, have something in common here where both of us recognize that this is temporary. What we're, our, our climate is not eternal. I mean, from the scientific side of things, our sun's only got a couple billion good years left of being able to sustain life, and we're done So anything we do is only temporary. It's not going to make things last forever. Christians, too, say this order of things is not all that there is. There's something more that's going to happen. Now, what I think is really fascinating is that we Christians, though, think that there's something more that's going to be happening is somehow connected to what we do here and now. It's not as though the resurrection or the new order of things is a complete separation and God wipes out one and creates some brand new thing. So if you even think of the resurrection of Jesus's body. Here's this thing that died that then is transformed and comes back. So in some mysterious way, the things that we do here and now are connected to this greater this greater existence, this eternal existence, this glory of the heavenly kingdom that's going to exist for all time. What we do now is connected to that. So we, of all people, of all people, ought to be concerned about what we're doing here and now because it is going to have eternal consequences. Yeah, if I can way. jump
0: in there, it just strikes me there's a way of like preaching or teaching or theologizing about what you just said. The stress is like the discontinuity between this world and the next between this space of existence and the next, but um uh, scripture seems to be doing something much more nuanced, like you said there's a there 's both a continuity and a discontinuity, the resurrected Christ, which if you read the new testament like it 's really clear that these people believe that the thing that happened in jesus 's resurrection is a is a foretaste right it 's a little down payment on what 's going to happen cosmically, and there's something there 's some continuity there, like you said, the body comes out, and the wounds are still there, right. Yes. Great. Thanks. True. There's still like 5% of me. That's a Bethel college student that really wants the prof to agree with me. Um, There's another angle here, though, that you and I have talked about, about why people of faith and followers of Jesus should care about climate change in particular, and it has to do with justice. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah,
2: let's walk through a little bit of what we know uh, so far about climate change and where things are headed, if we can. So there's this thing called the IPCC report. You probably heard in the news here. It came out in August. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is a group of hundreds of climate scientists who are not charged with doing their own original research, but are like scouring all the research that has been done and pulling this together to say, here's what we've learned. These are our best conclusions about what we know. And what came out of that this past August was several main takeaways, one of which is that it's unequivocal that the activities of humans, particularly over the last hundred years have caused a warming of the planet. Right now, about 1.1 degrees Celsius, but that's uh, on the rise. And secondly, what comes out of this is that the science of this has gotten better and better and better. The kind of models that scientists have used to understand this are now showing greater and greater accuracy. And some of you that... Listen to news from some certain channels might think that no it's all they don't know, really know what they're talking about scientists since the 1860s have known that when you put carbon dioxide into the air it traps heat. It's just, I mean, it's basic physics that they have understood this for a really long time. What we're finding now is what is the extent, how much of it takes in our atmosphere before these consequences start happening. Another of these findings that's kind of sober is that if we were to stop pumping carbon dioxide and the other greenhouse gases somehow miraculously, if we'd stop that today, there would still be 30 years of increasingly worsening climate because of what we've already put there. You might think of that as though if you started eating McDonald's exclusively today and did that for a whole year, and then you stopped, it's not like you'd suddenly get healthy. It takes a while for this stuff to work through the system. And in the same way, the carbon dioxide that's already out there is going to take that long to work through the system. And then finally, what this report said is there is a very narrow window that we can still make some decisions as a society that will help, that can slow some of this down. Because here's what's happening, and I'm getting around to the question you asked about justice here still... Um, too often we think about global warming and think that all that means is that the oceans are going to rise a couple feet, and you know, too bad for New Orleans and Miami and some of those places, but really, you know, what's the big deal? They can move inland. Well, there's a lot more that's connected to that. And so it's not just sea rise, but it's extreme weather. So a couple of degrees warming means a lot more moisture gets evaporated from the oceans up into the air. That causes extreme weather all over the planet. If you've checked your news feed recently, you might see that this weekend, there's blizzard warnings in Hawaii. <laughs> That's not normal, yeah. right? And we just need to
0: confess that some of us are, like, kind of happy about that. We're just like, yeah. <laughs> we just need to own our sin and name it.
2: But you see then the, the wildfires out west, the hurricanes, the drought, the heat, all of that is connected to increasing average temperature that causes extreme weather to go. Now, another factor of that, then, is that the ecosystems are degrading. If we warm two degrees, 99% of the coral reefs in the ocean are going to die. They can't sustain that, and those are connected to other kinds of ecosystems. It, that, that degree of temperature rise means certain kinds of insects, their habitable zones are going to change. And they're the, the pollinators of lots of crops. That means lots of crops are going to change. Now we're getting to this justice thing because what a lot of those things mean is that in lots of parts of the world, people aren't going to be able to live there anymore. So it was great that you had Andrea here talking about refugees. You want to talk about a refugee crisis? If uh, the world warms by two degrees, places like the hundred million people in Bangladesh can't live there anymore. Where are you going to put those hundred million people? Already, the refugees that are coming from Central and South America, many of them are coming because they can't grow crops anymore. They can't grow crops and they have to find some, somewhere else to live. And the uh, justice side of this in particular is that most of those places who are going to suffer the most are not the ones primarily responsible for causing it. And if I look around the room, most of us in here are going to be okay. You know, we're middle-class Americans in middle America, and we're going to be fine. We'll, you know, turn up the air conditioning in our houses, and... And it's the people who are going to suffer that aren't responsible for doing what we as a species have done over the last hundred years. So that's what turns this into a justice issue. It turns it into a justice issue for us, and as Christians, we ought to care about that.
0: Yeah, one of the things you uh, you can see Jesus doing in the Gospels, you can see God kind of moving, um, is he seems to continue to call people to imagine, like, wider and wider circles of belonging, Right? So it's not just your own actual family that belongs to you and you belong to them. And it's not just your actual village. It's just this idea that um he keeps kind of like pushing outside these boundaries to say we all belong to each other, right? And I think um that can be hard to conceptualize. It's easier for me to connect with the idea that my closest relationships are people that I want to take responsibility for. But it seems like a lot of what God is doing as he grows us up in the kingdom of God is to teach us to be the kind of people who imagine that everybody on the planet we belong to each other, and that generations after us that we have some responsibility to them too, right? Even if we aren't the ones that that benefit from our action.
2: Again, true answer, Jason. Excellent. Well good. done,
0: man. We're doing good today. Give him an a. I'm having a great day. I don't know about you guys. Uh, <laughs> in spite of all that doomsday scenario you just gave us. Um, right. In fact, let's turn there. So, uh, jokes aside, you just laid out like a really scary scenario, and I think perhaps one of the reasons that some of us have not paid a lot of attention to this, is that when we do turn toward it, it's, it's quite overwhelming. Um, it's tragic and it's systemic and it's so big that it can be really hard to know how to not just get frozen when we look at it. And so I think some of us are tempted to just kind of turn away or to feel so defeated that it's, I mean, like despair is a word for when you think there's just no good future ahead. And some of this data can feel that way. So I wonder if we could turn uh, the conversation um, to questions of, uh, like, hope. And we're we're looking for, like, real hope here. We're not looking for some kind of Pollyanna, Christianese, head in the sand, pretend everything's going to be fine nonsense. Uh, I'm actually wondering, like, if Advent is a season for people who are learning how to hope uh, and if the Christian story has a way of thinking about hope, like, how do you understand that today when you, th- when you look at these really big, daunting questions? And your job is to kind of work on faith and science together.
2: Yeah, and I talk to a lot of the scientists who are actually doing the work and understand this far better than I do. And there is a kind of despondency that you can see from them sometimes. And part of it is rooted on our human psychology, which for, has good evolutionary ex- un- explanations for why... A threat like this that is really big but is kind of far enough away that it doesn 't grab us you know we 're wired to worry about the things right here right now that are the threats that are that are uh, that we should worry about, but this is one that 's like this slow burn that we 're getting closer and closer and closer to this point of no return and so i 've talked to a lot of these people recently and um, so I've been thinking a lot about hope, particularly as we do get into Advent here, and we're Christians, and this is Christmas, and we're supposed to have hope. And what I've been doing, and this is kind of a philosopher's trick, I guess, to to define the words the way you need them to be so that it all works out, but what I've been doing is thinking about there's got to be a difference between optimism and hope, right? Because Frankly, most days I'm not very optimistic about the way things are going, the climate crisis, as well as culture in general in lots of ways, right? It's it's hard to be optimistic. So how do we find hope in the midst of this? So I'm looking for this way to understand how can I be hopeful, because I think I'm called to be hopeful. I'm called to aspire to that. How can I be hopeful if I'm not terribly optimistic? So, I hope this doesn't just sound like it's defining the problem away, but in some sense, I think optimism can be understood more as just this feeling that I get that's based on immediate circumstances, whereas for hope, I'm looking for something a little bit deeper, a little more enduring and sustainable, than just the feeling that I have that's based on consequences. So in using good theological language, I think hope is something more like the phrase that gets used in the Bible a number of times of having eyes to see and having ears to hear. So understand that in this. Was anybody, did anybody see the sunrise this morning? I guess this is second service. You don't, you're here for a reason. Know your you audience, Jim. But we were driving over from Goshen today and the sun's coming up spectacular red sky in the morning I mean just as big and red as I have ever seen a sunrise and I saw that and said thank you God you know and and that's Having eyes to see which means there's something else that I believe that enables me to see something in a particular light so having, having this understanding of something allows me to see something. A little differently. So if uh, you know the book of James in the New Testament, it begins with James saying, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. So consider, so this bad stuff is happening, and James says, you can consider it, you can think about it this way, because you know this other thing. So knowing this other thing allows me to see it in this way. So this is where I'm going with hope, where I think being connected to the bigger story of what we believe as Christians, of what we believe the ultimate fate of the universe is, because I know that, it allows me to see, it gives me the eyes to see that even difficult circumstances... I can see them in a different way. I can see them in a different light. I can be hopeful in spite of the circumstances, because this doesn't mean the circumstances aren't really bad. They are really bad, but it allows me to see something in a little different light, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, you and I talked also about another letter from the New Testament, the book of Romans. Um, Here in chapter 5, I'll put it on the screen. Uh, Paul writes and says, We boast in our hope, sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And you, you kind of, uh, pointed that out to me when we were talking earlier this week, and I've been sitting with this passage and just thinking about how, um, first of all, suffering, I think, I mean, we all have our versions of that in our lives. I think actually even to confront some of the picture of climate reality that you described, there is a shade of suffering in that. There's, um, fear and, and pain and a sense of impending loss in all of that. Um, he says though that suffering produces endurance, endurance, character, character, hope. And if, if hope lands at the end of that sequence for Paul, it strikes me that like, this is something forged within us. It's, it's, um, it's not just a feeling, right. And it's not just predicated on looking around and everything being fine. He's saying like, when you're going through it, you can consent to this process that like forges something within you right does that resonate with what you're saying
2: yeah so here in this sequence of things hope comes from character so character is the like the settled sort of disposition that i might have to things which comes here endurance is the word but i might even say habits habits that are formed Habits are things that I can choose to make myself do, and if I choose to do them over and over again, that's where my character comes from and hope comes from that. So in a sense, yeah, like I was saying, optimism is just this feeling that comes to me. I can't really control how I feel. I can't just snap my fingers and stop feeling a certain way. But I can choose to do certain things. I can choose to respond to the suffering in a way that, is habitual that I condition myself to doing this that produces character that hope comes from there. So hope is much more this thing that I can commit myself to rather than just a feeling that I have. I commit myself and say, I am going to see the world in this way. I can choose to see the world in this way, even though it looks just in the temporary circumstances, I say, this looks so bad. But hope comes from choosing to commit to see that in light of other things that I know.
0: Uh, when you say it like that, it starts to sound to me like hope is almost something like muscle memory. Right. That exactly. gets developed through choosing to That's be a right. certain kind of person in the world over and over and over again. Right. Like right. Little, little decisions that we make. Right. right. Um, this also connects to another moment in the New Testament that has been on my mind this week. And it comes from the Christmas story. Um, and so I'll, I'll put this text on the screen in a moment. But uh, I've thought about this text for a long time. Um, in the book of Luke where, you know, Mary finds out that God wants to conceive this child in Mary. Um, I've, I've more and more uh, been struck by the vulnerability of that moment for Mary. Uh, she's an unwed woman in a patriarchal world where, uh, to be found to be pregnant, but not married actually means she's liable to be stoned to death. And that's like actually the protocol that could come upon her. So she's presented with the situation that she could say yes to or not. And in saying yes, she makes herself more vulnerable. Um, but then she sings this song in Luke chapter 1 that I actually, I actually think often when you're reading the New Testament, stuff that seems weird or not right, you should lean into it, like pay attention to it, don't gloss over it. I think the song's crazy. I think it's weird. And let me show you the song, and I'll try to tell you what I mean. So she just she has this sort of invitation from God that she could consent to this child being conceived in her. And upon like saying yes and making herself even more vulnerable, she says this. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Like that's big, expansive language, saying that God has done all of these incredible things to set the world right and to lift me up. And she sings that song. It's called the Magnificat, by the way. If you've heard kind of the old word for this song that she sings, she's like she sings that big cosmic, hopeful story after just having said like yes to this like one very vulnerable thing that's going to happen in her life. Like I read that song, and I actually think, no, he hasn't. He hasn't really done all these things yet. But there are still hungry people in the world that Mary lives in, in the world that you and I live in today. Um, the people of Abraham, his servant Israel, they're still longing for the kind of deliverance that they imagined when Mary sings this song. But she says, this has happened. And my my take on that, and this is what you and I talked about also this week, is that there's something about participating in this big cosmic story that we trust through like the little things that we say yes to in our lives. That even if the little things we say yes to, if if you look at us and the world around us, not everything has changed. And yet there's something about participating, about like opting in, about saying, I'm gonna be part of that big story. With my everyday decisions and the things I can say yes to and no to, even if in the moment when I say yes or no, nothing changes. Does that track with you? Yeah, so in some sense, participating is what
2: gives me the eyes to see. I think, by those little decisions. So one of the questions people always ask, we're talking about climate change, what can I really do? What are some things that I can do? And the first response I want to make to that is something that's not original to me. It's a guy I was talking to recently said, we as Christians, were not called to be effective. We are called to be faithful. On our best days, doing the things that we're faithful in have some effectiveness and make the world a little better place. But that's not actually what we're called to do. That's not... We're called to do the faithful things. And what does it mean to be faithful in circumstances like the ones we're in? Because the little everyday actions that you and I might do aren't going to change the climate crisis on, on their own. The, the little things that we do. But what they might do is they might give us the eyes to see the bigger picture. Right. So when I recycle my plastics, which I mean, first of all, just try not to buy any more plastics because most of it doesn't get recycled anyway. But if you start in on some of these smaller actions, I join in with part of the community that takes this stuff seriously. I'm not going to tell you you can't ever eat meat again, but I am going to say maybe you could eat less meat because it's actually not good for the environment. It consumes a lot of resources when we uh, do things like think about where our energy comes from you know all of these things and then i make little decisions based on that they take me into this community that's concerned about this it gives me eyes to see so my participation even if those actions themselves are not going to solve it they give me the eyes to see that these things are important and it's part of a bigger picture that we're all a part of
0: yeah I, that's really helpful for me because like i think especially in the modern world i think we're so prone toward um it's a very kind of utilitarian, uh, world that we live in. Right. It's like, I'm definitely the guy that's guilty of like, what difference does it make? So why would I bother? Right. So I'll be at home and I have my recycling bin and sometimes stuff makes it in the bin. Sometimes it doesn't. And I've read the depressing news about how much plastic doesn't even get recycled anyway. And then like what happens though is, um, I get so focused on this very purely like utilitarian view that I lose sight of who I'm becoming. Like back to the the character arc there that we talked about character and hope, I think, right? Like, so there's the question of whether one action in my little everyday life is going to change the climate crisis. And the answer is probably no. Right. But then there's the question of like, who am I becoming? And I'm becoming the kind of person who lives in alignment with what we believe about our stewardship of the world. Right. And I, I think I am learning little by little that hope comes from who I am becoming. Right. That, that, that thing about character getting forged in us. And so you're saying these things, they may not change the game overnight but there are still ways that we can actually like, act and be the kind of people in the world who are, are living in harmony with what we believe about our role in all this. Right?
2: Here's, a, here's a story about, about that very thing. So we live over in Goshen now, and just a month ago or so, there was a story in the news that someone was trying to install a really big solar farm out in the country outside just south of Goshen, and it got voted down because the people around said, we don't want that ugly kind of thing in our rural community. So there's this feeling like taking steps that really can make some difference are resisted because of the groups that I'm in, the cult- again, back to the culture wars that we're part of. Well, we live in this little housing development that has a homeowners association over in Goshen, and if you're uh, Seinfeld fans, it feels very much like Jerry's parents down in Florida that live in Del Boca Vista Phase Two. And I'm right now in the midst of working through the Homeowners Association to try to be able to install solar panels on my roof. There's a law a law, a rule of the Homeowners Association that we can't do that sort of thing and we're trying to change this. And what's ha- and again, I know that my putting solar panels on, it's going to save me 150 bucks a month by the time they're producing and so there is some incentive there and it's not going to change the whole climate situation but here's what's happening. It started these conversations in my funny little community there where people who were always on one side of the culture wars are, are now saying, oh, so this is the way solar works. Oh, so it really is cheaper now. Oh, it really is making it so there's less coal being burned. Oh, and it's just started a conversation where a bigger community is being drawn in a little bit more to understanding what it might mean to be good stewards of the resources that are around us. So it does something to me personally, you know, there's, it's sort of like, This badge I'm wearing, this feeling of, yeah, I'm I'm trying to get solar panels. How cool is that? And it gives me this feeling of agency in some sense. This is this part of my commitment to act in certain ways helps to bring about this hopefulness. But then it's also spreading within a community that are now seeing a little bit differently what some of these... uh, Choices are before us about how we use resources and it's bringing them into that conversation as well And that's the way the the kind of change that's necessary to happen That's the way it's going to work is by bigger and bigger communities of people Getting on board and seeing yes. This is important. We need to act in certain ways
0: Uh, we've framed a lot of this with uh, a reading of the Christian story right of kind of a theological view of where we are and where things go uh, in God's world. Um, what I love, one thing I love about Stop City Church is we have people who are all over the board of belief and non-belief and uncertainty about that story. Um, and when you and I talked earlier this week, you talked in your own life about certainty as one category of experience and hope as another. And I think this might be helpful for us to turn toward this too, just knowing in a, in a room this large that we have, we're all over the board here, right? On whether we think that that's the true story or how could we even know Uh, So can you talk to us a little bit about how you experience certainty versus hope and and where that's taken shape in your life?
2: Yeah, another story. So summer of 2012, uh, my wife and kids and I were up on Mackinac Island, and my phone buzzed. I got an email, and I opened it up and saw from this email that one of my colleagues in the Department of Religion and Philosophy at Bethel had just tragically died. Uh, Some of you know him. Jay, you know him real well. Gene Carpenter. He was an Old Testament professor for a long time. Uh, He was my professor when I was a student there and then became a colleague of mine. Quirky guy. Could read and write over 20 languages. Had a tragic accident. He was out fishing. Somehow the boat got away from him. Nobody really knows. He was by himself, but he drowned. (sighs) came back, and I was one of the people asked to speak at his funeral and it 's you know one of those times that this is just a tragedy and i 'm when I spoke at the funeral, I was not going to sugarcoat and you know, use the platitudes of well, God must just have wanted to bring him home now. you know I said this is awful, this is tragic it makes me upset it makes me angry that this is the this is the way the world is right now, right? And I don't get it. I don't understand it. Why it has to be this way. And then attempting to uh, inject some of the the sort of Christianese into that kind of occasion that you're expected to, I also said, and I'm not making this up, but I also said, but I have a hope. I have a hope in the resurrection. I hope that I'll see Gene again one day. Later that night, I got an email from a pastor of all people. Pastor. easy, <laughs> Who said, Jim, can I take you out for coffee? I'd like to talk to you about something. I was at the funeral today. I'd like to talk about something you said. I'm like, oh great, here we go. So I go to coffee with this pastor and he said, great job, this is really good, but I, you know, when you said, I hope that there's a resurrection and I hope that I'll see Gene again one day. She said, why would you say that? Why wouldn't you say, I know there's a resurrection. I know I'm going to see Gene again one day. Is your faith wavering? Pastors, man. (sighs) And in the moment, you know, I figured it's good in relating to a pastor to like quote the Bible back to him and said, I think hope is the right eschatological attitude." The hope of glory, right? This is what Paul said, and that placated him in the moment. But there's something deeper going on in my own, you know, in my own spirit in all of this, where the older older I've gotten, the less I think I know about those things, and the more I hope... (laughs) The more I hope, and it's not, I don't mean hope there in some Pollyanna. I hope this is true the way I hope I win the lottery, or I hope Notre Dame gets into this playoff somehow. Amen. But I hope in the sense of, I am committed to this. If in church I can invoke a gambling metaphor, I am all in on this story. (laughs) I'm all in even though some days I'm not sure if I believe it. <laughs> I'm not sure that I can just choose to believe it every time based on the circumstances around it. In the same way, I can't always choose how I feel and whether I'm optimistic or pessimistic. But I can choose to say, but I'm in. This is the story I'm part of. This is, this is what I'm sticking to. This is the way I choose to see the world the eyes that I have to see, the things that I believe that I'm taking to the way I'm going to interpret my circumstances, even if I don't always believe it, I'm still in. I'm still in. I hope.
0: And just to, again, call out the outlines of that story, it includes the idea that this world is given. It's not simply here, right? It's given and blessed by a creator. Um that to be human is to be called to be a steward of that creation Uh, to be human is to be called into a way of life that matters not just for this moment but eternally that there's something about our actions and habits and character in this life that we live right now that somehow gets translated into an unending future and you're all in on that even on the days you're not sure you believe it because we can't always choose that I have that right And those actions, again, those actions that I can
2: force myself to do, do, the things that I can participate in, I think help to bring about the feeling. You know, we want the feelings too. But quite often those feelings come on the heels of the actions rather than them being the motivators of the actions. Because if we just relied on our feelings to motivate us what to do, most days I'd sit and drink scotch and watch TV all day long. Because that's all i feel like doing this
0: community gets that i understand yeah (laughs) yeah well jim i think um by way of benediction i'd love if we could turn uh you have this text from uh from narnia um and you can set that up for us in a moment but before we do uh i want to make sure you all know um, biologos the organization that jim helps lead has incredible resources i cannot recommend this group enough Uh, i've been following biologos for years Um, I've had a fair amount of contact with you and others at the organization and I just can't speak highly enough. Their website is really, really well put together. You can find articles, thoughtful reflections, people working out questions around science and faith in all kinds of areas, especially in areas like human origins, evolution, faith, but also climate change. Uh, Jim is the host of a podcast for BioLogos called The Language of God. It is on my heavy rotation. I can't tell you how many times I've had to text Jim in the middle of a weekday and say, man, I just listened to the newest episode and it really moved me. Uh, So if you want to hear more, not just from Jim, but from a whole array of theologians, scientists, artists, and other thinkers, it's really, really fantastic conversation. So please check that out. Um, I don't know if we mentioned it in this gathering, but there's a book by Catherine Hayhoe named Saving Us. It's the name of the book. And you give us a quick recommendation. Catherine
2: Hayhoe is a world-class climate scientist. She's also a Christian and has written and spoken on these topics a lot. Her latest book called Saving Us, we did a podcast episode just recently with her about the book. But it is on the way she finds hope in the midst of this. And I think she's a really, really important voice right now for for Christians in particular, but for humanity in general on uh, what we need to do uh, to uh, be good stewards of the planet.
0: Uh, Before we turn to the benediction, I also just want to say, and I have a feeling that you're going to want to echo this, um, but uh, Jim, I know that um, you following your convictions um, has also cost you some sense of belonging along the way, and uh, there's a lot of people in this family that understand some version of that, and so um, I don't know how many Christian spaces you get to hear this in, but we love you, and we're grateful, and uh, we're honored that we get to learn from you today, and we're cheering for you in the work. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Thanks. Yeah, that's really gratifying to hear. <laughs> I was going to say, too, uh, with Andre here talking about refugees, but I didn't want to trivialize the really important work with actual refugees she does. But in at least a metaphorical sense, I know many of us feel like we're spiritual refugees that are part of this community and have found a place that uh, we can call home when we feel homeless, so many other places. So thank you.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful, man. Uh, Yeah, right? So, Jim, uh, you've got this excerpt from a work of literature that we realized makes a really beautiful benediction for us today. And so uh, we're going to stand, and Jim, you want to set it up for us, and then you want to share it with us? I think this
2: is a really powerful picture of hope. And it comes from one of my uh, literary heroes, if you will, Puddle Glum from the Chronicles of Narnia and the Silver Chair. And if uh, seeing a uh, bald middle-aged guy up on stage get a little weepy makes you feel uncomfortable, let me just say prepare to feel uncomfortable because this uh, goes right to my uh, core. But if you know the story of the Silver Chair c s Lewis is writing these these allegories of the Christian life in many sense, and the Silver Chair has puddle glum, this melancholy kind of comic figure that becomes a guide to these children who are in search of a lost prince, and their search takes them underground where they spend days and days and days underground, and even to the point where Narnia, the land up above them, starts to just feel like a dream. Was that really real? And when they find this prince, they find that he's been enchanted by a witch, and she's now attempting to enchant them as well to make them think that the rest of that life was just a dream. And so for me, it's, it's hearing, hearing this uh, as the rest of life, Narnia, as these things that we believe you know, in the core of our beings. And sometimes we feel like this world we live in gives these other kind of plausible explanations that make us think we've just made all this up, that it's just a fairy tale. And this passage from Puddleglum here in the silver chair is responding to that. So the queen is trying to enchant them. She's strumming this music softly and puts this incense in the fire that's burning that's just sucking them into the world where everything they believed was just a fairy tale. And then Puddleglum, in this sort of heroic, courageous act, walks over and stamps out the fire and then makes this speech. "'One word, ma'am,' he said, coming back from the fire, limping because of the pain. "'One word,' All you've been saying is quite right, I shouldn't wonder. I'm a chap who always like to know the worst and then put the best face I can on it. So I won't deny any of what you said. But there's one thing more to be said, even so. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars, and Aslan himself, Aslan the good lion, the Christ figure in the stories. Suppose we have made all that up. Then all I can say is that in that case, the made-up things, the, the, I will get this out, I promise. The made-up things seem a good deal more important than your real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right. But four babies playing a game can make a play world which licks your real world hollow. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't a Narnia. So thanking you kindly for our supper, if these two gentlemen and the young lady are ready, we're leaving your court at once and setting out in the dark to spend our lives looking for the overland. Not that our lives will be very long, I should think, but that's a small loss if the world's as dull a place as you say. (laughs) I'm setting out to spend my life in the dark looking for the overland. I think that's what hope is, saying it's dark. It's dark around us, but I am all in. I'm living as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't a Narnia. That's hope. Grace and peace. What's the line? Grace and peace be with you.
0: Amen.